Hey there, I am so glad you are back for another riveting episode of Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. And <laughs> boy, today is going to be a... Well, it's hard to describe really, so just bear with me. This story is most definitely going to make your head spin a little. Can you imagine what it must be like to be locked up for a crime you did not actually commit? Imagine losing everything you hold dear, your family, your friends, your livelihood, your home, all for the mistakes of another person. You're trading your cozy bed for a thin, uncomfortable mattress thrown carelessly into a cold prison cell. Your favorite meal is replaced by a daily ration of gray, flavorless pulp that does not resemble anything you would ever consider worth eating. Your plans are out of the window because you no longer call any shots for anything in your very own life. Imagine six years and two months of this kind of bleak, lonely existence for, well, for nothing. Because you know in your heart of hearts that you did not commit the crime you have been incarcerated for. Picture it. The helplessness and constant battle between fighting for your own justice and throwing in the towel because your chances to actually receive justice are super slim. Today we get to talk to one of the few wrongfully convicted and incarcerated individuals in this country who actually made it out and lived to tell the tale. According to the Georgia Innocence Project, 4-6% of people incarcerated in U.S. prisons are innocent, meaning that about one out of every 20 prisoners in our U.S. prisons today is serving time for something they did not actually do. Let that sink in. I don't know about you, but I think that is a scary number. My guest today is Donnie. He's 43 and has managed to build himself a bit of a business empire. He's a successful entrepreneur owning several thriving companies right here in South Carolina. If you had the chance to meet Donnie in person today, you would most likely just see him as a lucky guy who's doing well in life and pretty much has it made. The tremendous cost and determination, the strenuous journey, the personal evolution and transformation and everything else it has taken in order for him to be where he is right now is so unbelievably unlikely that you probably just wouldn't believe it. I feel incredibly honored that I get to speak to Donnie about the long rocky road that lies behind him and how he managed to completely rebuild himself and his own life like a phoenix from the ashes so he can now share his newfound wisdom and knowledge to help others as they seek to rebuild themselves. Give a warm welcome to my guest Donnie, a prime example of what Thoughtvolution is trying to show every single week, that human beings have the capacity to change, adapt, grow, and evolve. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about drugs and addiction, murder, violence, confinement, and incarceration. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, Please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Donnie, thank you so much for being here. Before we talk about your successful life today, which is quite impressive, I might add, especially considering everything our listeners are about to learn about you. But before all of that, I would like to talk about the roots of you and your story. 
how and where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a child? When I was young, my life was pretty much, it was rough. Um, I come from a very poor background. Um, I lost my mother at a very early age. She died in a car wreck uh, on my second birthday. My father was in prison uh, shortly after that, about two years, and has been in prison since 1984 and is still incarcerated. So life was, we didn't have a lot of money, um, just one one car. My grandmother, who raised me after my mother passed away, she couldn't read or write, but she worked two jobs and she took care of the family. I had really no father figure, her husband, which would have been my step-grandfather, was the only male figure that was in my life. And it was clear that I wasn't his son. I mean, he made that known, and I wasn't really ever treated like a, a, a son. So things were just rough. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we stayed in very low-income housing, which is like older meal houses, like that, that migrant workers kind of stayed in just like kind of the shotgun houses with no insulation, uh, roll-out windows. But she made it work. I would say that we the lights never got cut off. We never got put out of anywhere. We always had food. We didn't have the best of things, but we always had clothes. So she did provide, even though she didn't have an education, she couldn't read or write, she could only sign her name. And uh, she could count. She could count money, so she worked as a at a nursery, a flower nursery, and she worked also as a uh, she worked at a dry cleaner. Yeah, she did anything it took to make ends meet. So she was a very very hard working lady. A little later on, we will talk about what life is like currently for you. But what I want to ask right now is. Did growing up without your father, since he was incarcerated and unable to be present in your own life, did that impact how you now show up for your own kids? Yes, it plays a major role in how I interact with my two little girls. I make sure to be there for them as much as possible. Um, it's been a major focal point is to be a father figure to them and to be just just present and not only present to be active, um, to be loving and caring and to be able to show them the structure that I didn't have, because that's part of the reason why I, I took some, made some of the choices that uh, I made. So yes, it really is very impactful, but it's also something that had to be learned over time. And I'm still currently working on it because not having a father figure in your life or coming from a a hard background, it's really hard to be able to show that genuine love that um, little girls need and even and men need it too. But that softness that you have to display to them is is imperative. And so um yeah, it 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 makes you want to be there and that's part of my one of my goals is to break the curse of my father not being in my life because I didn't want to keep repeating that cycle. 
you were quite the athlete when you were younger. What kind of sports did you get into and how did your athletic career end? In high school, I played a wide receiver, football, backup running back. I ran track and I played a little bit of, of basketball. I was very active uh, and it was into weightlifting. Football started out slow for me because I was small and honestly, I wasn't allowed to play Little League football because, for one, I was too small. And, I, and honestly, we just we didn't have the funds. So that played a major role in my ability to learn the football curriculum. So that puts you behind as an athlete. I worked hard, and despite my size, I just kept powering through. And I started to become good, and I was naturally fast and strong for for my size and I just had heart and determination and I became a good re receiver my junior year was okay but my outcoming year would have been my senior year when I would have really like shine through struggling and not really having the, the ability to get back and forth to practices moving not going to school I was in ended up flunking out of school and becoming ineligible to play in my senior year. And that was the year that my actual senior year team, they went almost and almost went. It was one game away from the championship. And it seemed like holes over my head because they often say that if I had been there, they would have won the championship because it was they was one game away from it. And I felt like I was that guy that had the ability to make that difference and through the struggling and coming from low income and making bad decisions I didn't get to live that out and that's probably one of my only regrets that I still have today. Do you think that football was an escape for you back then and that without that in your life you were eventually forced to face your rather harsh reality with no filter, no valve, no real opportunity to get away. Yes. The summer I received the letter from the school board saying that I was ineligible, it was just a nightmare. And it destroyed any hope that I had for football. And it just, it took away my want and drive to even really go to school. So school honestly became just then a fashion show and just, you know, a way to make connections. So I would go to school maybe two days a week. And once I hit a point where I could not even pass because I had missed so many days, I would just withdraw my own self from that semester. And I did that for about three semesters, and it just got old. It wasn't going nowhere. And then that's when I started making decisions um, that led me right down the wrong road. Speaking of the wrong road, you had mentioned to me earlier that drugs played a major role for you when you were growing up, both as a consumer and eventually even as a drug dealer. How did your own use of drugs begin, and how did you end up joining the drug trade? I started smoking weed with just my actual childhood best friend because it was a little older than me and their culture was a little bit different. And their, the way they was raised actually was different. They basically was raised 
in a drug dealing family that they they dealt drugs openly and their kids knew about it. That was just their lifestyle. That's what they came from and that's what they did and how they made a living and the kids knew about it. So we had they had easy access to it. So that's how I started smoking weed. And when you start start something, you have to find a way to get it and to support your habit. And coming from a low-income family, if you got a weed habit, where are you going to get the money from? So it's like, well, boom. So my grandma, they always they smoke weed. So first it started out, I started sneaking out of her bag. She caught on, got caught. And now it's like, okay, what do you do now? That's when the hustle came in. I started like just finding individuals, which was actually white friends that didn't have access to marijuana. And I did. So there's a connection. So they had money. I had the connection. They trusted me to go to the plug and, and get the weed. So that's how it started. I could get their money and take it to someone else and get a product and then give them however much that I figured it was worth, take my my part of the, of, of the weed and keep my cut of the money and give them what they want. They're happy, I'm happy, and the plug is happy. That's how I got introduced to the drug, the drug game is having to really support my own habit that I did not have the means to support. It was the only option was to either steal it, steal money, or become a, a drug dealer or a hustle. Now, was it only weed, or did you sell other drugs as well? At first, it was just weed, but then when I got better at selling weed and deeper in the game, other drugs did come, like cocaine, um, acid, um, pills. I've a little bit of it all. I got it. I started out actually trying to be a crack dealer, but that didn't work out because you have to really be heartless to sell crack. And I honestly just didn't have the heart to deal with that kind of clientele because you really it's it's a ruthless game when you get into the drugs that are harder than just marijuana, the cocaine and up crack and heroin. Uh, these drugs are much more extreme and the clientele that you deal with is way more dangerous. How do you feel about drugs now, especially considering that you dealing drugs may have negatively altered and impacted other people's lives back in the day? What would you say to those same people if you were given the opportunity right now? My take on drugs now is that if it's illegal it's illegal and it should not be done in the eyes of the law and you still should abide by the eyes of the law. As for marijuana, I would say that it can definitely be a gateway drug for the undeveloped mind and the weak-minded because it will introduce other things that come with it that you may not be ready to handle. I would say if it's legalized, then Go for it if that's what you choose to do. But anything other than that is detrimental to your future, uh, your well-being. It's just not worth it because you don't know what you're getting. I mean, you could you can die, and you don't know if the person you're even selling it to, even if it's just we, you don't know if they can handle that. So they could possibly, you know, freak out. Because I had a buddy that freaked out just by smoking marijuana because it, it's just it didn't go with whatever he had going on. And that was that was a very, very scary time. So if it's not legal, 
than to stay away from it, I would say. It's, it's just not worth it. It's better things to do. And if, if you want to get high, I would suggest just being high for life because that's the best high that you will ever be able to get. For anyone that I have ever sold drugs to or came across under the influence, if I met them now, I would apologize because that person was not the person that I would choose to show them. And because that's not me being the best me, I would apologize to them and I would tell them something positive and I would help them in any way I could if I came across anyone that I had ever wronged under the influence or if I sold them any anything and it was any adverse effects that came from that. Let's talk about the events that led to you ultimately being incarcerated. Where did all of this begin? What happened? A guy that I was affiliated with came home from prison, and I just actually had a bad judge of character. Um, I thought he was a very great guy, someone that I could actually trust and have on my team. And he picked up me and two of my other friends. He had a guy with him, and we was all supposed to be going to just smoke some weed and we took a ride all smoking together and we headed to an area in Spartanburg or Boyd Springs more more or less up under a bridge passing so we all was in the car together we went up under the bridge passing and he told us to just get out there and finished smoking that he was going to pick up something that he had in the stash obviously was some type of drugs that he didn't want us to see where he had stashed it so we all got out of the car and was smoking at the end of the uh, bridge passing it was more like a actual a tunnel where the traffic goes on top of it and you can also go up under on an, on this on the split level so it was probably about a 40 or 50 foot tunnel that we were standing all at the end of and we was just smoking he dropped us off turned around and went back back out so by the time he comes back we are all pretty much finished smoking and we're all on both sides of the actual uh drive i would say then he gets between us and gets out of the car and stands on the floorboard of the car and he has a gun out and he's pointing it at one of the guys on the right side of the car and he drew down on him the guy threw his hands up and he said a few words really was unclear exactly what was said and then he shot him two times in um, like the shoulder and chest area. The guy jerked back with each shot and then he just, his eyes just got super big. And then he turned around and ran back out towards the entrance of the trestle. He ran about halfway and then he collapsed to on the left left side of the trestle. The shooter ran down behind him and shot him three more times. And then he ran back to the car while we were all trying to get back in the car. He had all the doors locked except on the driver's side. And so we had to wait till he got back in the driver's seat to even get in the get in the car. So he came back, got in the car, let us in and it was really just like it was silent. But we had to actually go and turn around to go back out the trestle. So we had to go back past the actual body. So 
We're proceeding, and it was very, very cold. It was in January of 1999, and it had snowed. And it was so cold that you could literally still see the condensation coming from his breath out of his mouth. And the shooter pulled up the parking brake and stopped, and he got out, and he shot him two more times. And then he got back in the car, and he threw the pistol on the floorboard on my side. I put my feet up as far as I could get it from it. And he looked and he told us, he said, y'all take that to y'all's grave. Do the images of this man dying in front of you, do they still haunt you? Do they still pop up in your dreams, nightmares? I mean, you were 18 years old. You were still practically a kid. And even though you had a rough life, obviously, with you having been a drug dealer and having moved around in circles that you don't normally expect a child to move around in, that still must have left a mark. Yes, I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I do still have the image engraved in my subconscious mind, my conscious mind. I can never unsee that. And it has had a tremendous effect on me. Uh, in my sleep, yeah, I've had dreams of, of the night Plenty of times, I mean, up until today, I even often battle and war with the actual shooter because of how things um, went after he got locked up and we all got locked up. So it wasn't a pleasant ending. It was a lot of bad blood. So I still see this this figure, this man, um, in in my dreams, we still fight and war and and have a war going on mentally, and it's like it probably would never ever stop because I mean it's happened to me at such a young age, and when you're young, your mind is very impressionable. How do you return home to your normal surroundings after having witnessed this? At that point. It happened so fast, but I knew I couldn't say nothing because I was from the streets, for one. So I knew that if I said something, that it was going to tie me to it, for one. And I also knew and thought if I said something, that he was going to kill me, too. And that possibility lied. And so you really didn't know what to do. I just knew I wanted to forget it, honestly. And it happened so fast, it was almost like it, like it didn't happen. But Everything changed from that point on. Everything got really crazy, like beyond my wildest imagination. I could have never thought that that's what would happen, the things that happened. So he dropped us all off. I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell nobody. I just tried to forget about it. But one of the witnesses that was there took their friend actually back to the crime scene where it happened at. So by this time, the body had already been found and the authorities was watching that area. So that led to them getting the tag number and the photos and tapping into the victim, to the witnesses' phone lines. And these were these were people, kids my age, uh, teenagers, that had was the eyewitnesses. They wouldn't know, grown adults. And so they were, you know, discussing it over the phone. And one of the parents heard and called it in. 
the authorities had tapped the lines and and was starting to breathe down their neck and was listening to the story being told. Our parents were all starting to call us and tell us to come home. They was acting really weird. The authorities had was at our houses and telling us our parents that a crime had been committed and we needed to come home and talk to them. So we kept avoiding them, obviously, because we weren't just going to just go uh, go to where they was. So we were kept being on the run, and we was also hoping that it was for something very minor that we had did in the previous week. So we had got into a fight somewhere uh, at the hospital with some guys, and we beat them up. Nobody was killed or nothing of that nature, but it was a fight, and we was hoping that this is what they was looking for us for, but it really wasn't. So we kept running, we kept curving them, and when we would call home to talk to our parents, we would call home from pay phones. And whenever we would go towards our houses, we would see about 20, like, narcotics vehicles, like the old Crown Vicks, like, just coming to the area that we left because they were, I guess they was tracking where we was calling from, trying to uh, uh, find out where we were. So we kept like giving them on the wild goose chase. And then we had went to one of um, my friend girl's house um, in um, Border Springs. And we was laying low there and they were still, they were still calling us, telling us to come home. And we was like, nah, we ain't coming. So we was just laying low there. And then we heard, a knock at the door and I looked out the window and the whole entire house was surrounded by, um, um, police. And I looked at one of, um, one of my other buddies that was there and he was like, man, let's run. I'm like, nah, I'm like, nah, we ain't running no more. I said, because if we rerun now, I said, they're going to kill us. So I was like, we're going to surrender and see what they want. And so that's what we did. The whole entire house was surrounded. We walked out as soon as, we walked out that we was at gunpoint and they slammed us down and they drug us all in the separate vehicles and took us down to um, Spartanburg County. Were you given an opportunity to now tell your story? It was uh, very chaotic because it was they had a story already about what had happened. They had a, a good bit of evidence, but. They were either lying or saying, like playing with the whole cat, cat and mouse. They were saying, well, this the, this person is blaming it on you. This person is blaming it on you. The killer is blaming it on you. So they was pretty much playing that game. And I really, I held to my guns because I knew if I said anything that it was going to incriminate myself. I just acted like I didn't know nothing. Like I just kept it, like I wasn't there. But then it came to a point that I realized that these people have the whole entire story. They have the evidence. They knew who who was there. They got footprints. They got everything. So I kept playing hardball, but it came a point in time where I knew it was starting to look like I actually had something to do with it. And I didn't know the murder was going to happen. Um, I didn't have a chance to be in or out. So at that point in time, I knew 
that I had to tell the truth because an innocent man's life had been taken and it was time to do the right thing and stop like trying to be hard and tell the truth before I make matters worse than what they were was. At that point in time, I think that that's when I realized the magnitude of what making the decisions hold. So I tell the authorities the truth about what actually happened. So we then get locked up for accessory after the fact. They could have been like pricks and they could have possibly charged us with hands of one or hands of all because they often do that in cases of uh, this scenario. But they charge us after with accessory after the fact because we was willing to tell the truth about what had actually happened. So I still got a lesser charge because they were originally charging us all as murder suspects. That's what we was on the news as murder suspects. Accessory after the fact is a charge that carries zero to 15 years in prison. It is a charge that says that you knew about a crime and you did not come forward and tell the authorities. And that's what you're required to do as a law-abiding citizen if you witness a crime. And we did not do that. So that deemed us all as accessories to murder after the fact because of crime was committed and we did not come forward to the authorities. Now, during this process, did they give any consideration to the fact that you were traumatized, you were scared for your own life, considering that you had just witnessed, at the age of 18, I might add, a murder take place right in front of your eyes? So I understand them saying that you should have come forward, but you were also 18. You were also a highly traumatized kid. Did they give any consideration to that? I think they gave some consideration to our age. Um, I'm not going to say that they gave any consideration that the fact that we was traumatized or scared. That may be possible because the shooter was a person that was not even supposed to actually be on the streets. He was actually out on a mistake, and he was a— well-known convict, and he already had a lot of prison time, solitary confinement. So I don't think he was, like, all the way there mentally. So they more or less wanted him and to get get him off of the streets. So I think that that caused them to be more lenient to um, not hitting us with the maximum that they could have hit us with. You didn't get locked up in prison right after that, though. So what happened next? After this event, we ended up, I got out on bond, and my lifestyle changed dramatically. I be, I went from becoming a well-known drug dealer in the area, very outgoing, flashy, flamboyant, to being basically like a nomad a person living in in hiding because I was 
scared of if I was being watched or targeted by some of the victim's family or even uh, the murderer's family because of the events that escalated. So my life style changed a, a lot in a very of short period of time. I resorted to striving to get into the workforce um, in this pe- the period after I got out on bond because I didn't really want to see the same people. I didn't want to cross their paths. And then I was like, you know, this is it. Because I had been in and out of um, jail for a little petty stuff, but this was like, this was uh, something huge. And I was like, you know, it's time to get it together. It's, it's time to start, you know, working, put down the drug selling, and just kind of just just give it up. And so I just started uh, working and with my uncle doing, um, actually sand, uh, sanding floors and, um, things really wasn't going well at my home with my grandmother. So I ended up because of the weed smoking and just the lifestyle. And I was actually fear. I, I was scared for my life when I, when I when I went back there because I stayed like I didn't stay far from where the the incident happened anyway. So it just wasn't a good spot for me. So I went and lived with my uh, stepmother. And I was just there. We didn't have no work. I'm on the couch. And here I'm sitting on couch on the couch and I'm watching TV. And here I am. I'm on T I'm on TV. Crime stoppers for first degree degree burglary. My phone starts blowing up and I'm, people start calling me like, like, dog, man, I just saw you on Crime Stoppers. And I'm like, yeah, I know too. I'm like, let me go. I gotta find somewhere to get to. I'm out of here. So I'm in shock now. I'm like, what's going on? So then I went, I packed my, my I packed my stuff up, and I went and stayed with a friend in Union for the next two weeks to try to figure out what, what was going on. I then started to reach out to friends and family members, letting them know the situation and what was going on, and also that I was innocent. So we ended up getting a little bit of information about the crime that I was being accused of, which it was on Crime Stoppers. It was actually first-degree burglary. And first-degree burglary carries 30 to life. And it's a very serious charge. So I wanted to know what was going on. I knew I have never in my life broken into anyone's house. So I knew I was innocent, and I wanted to figure out what was going on so I could come up with a game plan uh, about the situation. I was still in the streets. My mother was very, very adamant about me turning myself in because she didn't want me to get shot in the streets from running and from the from running from the cops. And I respect my mother. And her opinion to the utmost. So that was the game plan. So we formed a dinner with family and friends. And the plan was to go and turn myself in. And that's what we did. It was in February of 1999. And when I got to Spartanburg County, they actually could not find the warrant. They would not even take me. They would not even allow me 
to turn myself in. I went into the warrants department and walked in and tried to turn myself in, and they wouldn't let me because they didn't have the warrant. So we went. I went back home. Well, I actually went back to my stepmother's house. That's where I was living at at the time. About a week went by, and my mom told me that they had started to come back by the house looking for me. And we pretty much reenacted the event. I hung out with some friends, and I went and I turned myself in because I was innocent, and I wanted to prove that. And so I turned myself in on February 23rd of 1999. What was the process when you showed up to turn yourself in? You get booked and you get fingerprinted. And then you typically, you're in a cold, hard cell with a metal toilet, cold floor, very, very small glass window. Probably I would say maybe a six by six, something like that. And you just wait. And then you go back and you get, um, you get, you get dressed. I mean, you get, you take off all your clothes. You just, that's, you go through the intake process. They would probably call that. And you, they take all your information. They take out your name. You get your clothes. They put all your stuff in a bag and then they dress you out in their county blues or greens and whatever they have for you to go back to a dorm. They get, you get your stuff and then you assign a, Sail typically with someone else in a uh, dormitory type of facility with typically one guard. Then that's where you typically, oh, if you don't get out on bond, that's where that's where you go and you wait on someone to come get you out of jail on bond. So at this point, nobody has actually talked to you about what you were accused of, what evidence they had, nothing. No, it's just. Um, the first part is you got your warrant, you get locked up and you do sit in the cell, like a holding cell and you get an arraignment. You sit there for an arraignment and wait to go and see the judge and they'll set you a bond, uh, based off of the nature and seriousness of the crime. And if somebody can make that bond, then you'll get out. But the judge pretty much, you know, states what the warrant is about the what it carries and all of that court talk. He'll just tell you basically how much time you're facing in the process. And then you go back to your holding cell. And if no one comes and gets you in a timely manner, then you uh, will be assigned a dorm and you wait in the dorm with the others. And that becomes your life until somebody gets you out on bond or you go to court and get time or get time served. Since you were already out on bond for the other case, were you able to make bond again? No, I didn't. At this point in time, it's like now oh, you're a menace, dude. You're, you, you, we're not giving you a bond. It's like because then they, they revoked my, my my bond on the on the other charge, and so that, then I had to just sit there. Ironically, I wasn't there very long in this instance, which is murder, first degree burglary things that carry that much weight, there's typically a long process with information gathering, just the general process. It's, it's a long process. You typically sit in the, Spart especially Spartanburg County, you will sit there six months to a year or more on these large capital um, cases like this. So lo and behold, for me, I 
turn myself in on February 23rd of 1999. And here it comes is in like March of the same year that they have a, a new solicitor and they said that they're going to let him try out some upcoming cases all of a sudden. So after that, the next Wednesday, I had a public defender come and speak with me about the case. This was on, I think it was on a Wednesday. The public defender came and talked to me and told me that I had they been also directly indicted for assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature. Not only was I being charged for that as well. So they said in the warrant that I broke into a lady's house, attacked her with a phone. She beat me off of her, and I fled the actual scene. So I asked them what evidence that they had. They said that they didn't have any fingerprints. They said that she had saw, saw me on TV as a murder suspect. And before that, she had been traumatized to the point that she didn't remember what I looked like. And it didn't jar her memory until she saw me on TV as a murder suspect with the case that happened in, in January. But the instance that she was speaking of happened in actually December of the 1998, and the murder didn't happen to until January of 1999. So she didn't come forward and say, hey, this is the guy that uh, attacked me until she saw me on TV as another suspect. This is what the this is what I'm being told from the um, the from the public defender, and he I, I was shown pictures of her face, which was uh, which was her face was blue, bruised up. Somebody did obviously attack her. Um, she said the guy had a, a yellow ball cap, a yellow ball ball cap on, and I guess resembled me. So they didn't have. They did. She did go to the hospital, but it was no. It was nothing taken. It was no, like intent for rape, and it wasn't even 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 any drug intent. So he tells me that I'm indicted for this extra charge, and he also starts to get information from me about where I was. My did I have an alibi witness? So I told him, yeah, I did have an alibi witness because I was living with a, a girl at the time. And but at the time that they say that this burglary would have happened, I would have been at home with her. So they said that they would um that that they would uh contact her. So I'm facing first three burglary and assault and battery of a high aggravated nature. And so these charges, I'm looking at 30 to life, the minimum. And the assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature carries zero to zero to 10. And these are all violent, violent charges. So I'm sitting here thinking like, I'm like, I haven't even had a chance to like, even get a game plan together. I haven't talked to my family about it because like, I know the streets and you sit 
for a long duration of time if you got a charge like this. So I hadn't got a lo- I hadn't got my own lawyer, and I honestly I didn't really probably couldn't even afford it. So I'm kind of seeing what they was gonna do, and I'm just sitting. So they came at me with the public defender, and he's telling me now, well, um, we're going to court with this because it's on the docket, and you got to start. We're picking you. You got to pick a jury tomorrow. So we're calling your alibi witness today, and then they called the alibi witness. This is how it went. They said that my alibi witness was not willing to cooperate. So I'm like, okay, what do I do? And then he started to give me the um, the pitch where if will you plea if you we can get it reduced to a lower sentence. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm like sweating bullets already. I'm like confused. I really don't even got no funds or time to get a lawyer and they're telling me I gotta I gotta go to court so I'm like I ain't, I'm like I don't even know what to do so I'm like I think I called my mom and my sister and I mean it really wasn't no help because I mean we ain't got no we didn't really have no funds for the lawyer yeah I was selling drugs but was I really making money and saving money putting away for a lawyer I mean probably no I didn't really I didn't really have it like that I was it was just a, a flashy type of thing for me so it ended up coming back saying that if they reduced it to second degree burglary, which carries a zero to fifteen, and put a a, a twelve year cap on it, would I be willing to you know plead plead guilty? And I was like, you know, I was like, I'm like on some shit. Like, I know, you know, I really didn't do this. I'm like, it's like, do I really have to do this? And I'm like, and he was like, well, I mean, if not, you're gonna have to pick your ju- pick your uh, juror, and you got to go to trial. And so I was like, well, let me think about it. He went back. This was on a Wednesday. And they were, the next day, they was they brought, it was bringing me a jumpsuit and telling me I was going to court. So basically, the plea bargain offer was presented to you as the only true option for somebody with a certain lack of funds and knowledge in this case? Well, I had spoken with my public defender about what was going on. And I really didn't want to plead guilty because I was innocent. But I also was scared to roll the dice with a life sentence because it's like, you know, well, if you get life, then it's over with for you, dog. I mean, it's, it's all or nothing. But then if I take this plea, I feel like, well, I got a chance to get back in court or I got a chance to see another day. This is how my mind was processing the information at this point in time. So I'm like, you know, 30 years of life, it's a long time. And I was like, I'm young. And I'm like, you know, it is what it is. I was like, if I can get a lot less of sentence and get back in court and beat them like that, this is this is how I'm thinking because they, they, they have made it seem like I really don't even have a case or any other options. And I and I didn't realize that because I'm like, my own, my my only alibi witness they're saying is not willing to cooperate with me. Uh, to uh, testify on my behalf, so I'm like, well, boom! I'm just gonna take the I'm gonna take the the plea and fight this, to see another another day. So, other than the statement from this woman who clearly lived through something horrifying, something that we wouldn't wish on anybody, other than her statement saying that she thinks that it was you because you look like the person who did this to her. There was no other evidence, nothing else that they had. No, they didn't have any evidence. I, I, I even asked about did they have any fingerprints 
and they said that they couldn't get anything, that it, the guy could have wore gloves, or they came up with a, a cockamamie excuse because if they had a, did a thorough investigation of the crime, that would have proved my actual innocence because I never was there, and it was no way possible for them to have my DNA on anything because I didn't do it. So how come that alibi witness, your girlfriend at the time, did not speak up on your behalf? Actually, I found out over the phone after I had got my time that she had never been contacted at all. So that at that point in time, I had realized that I had really been wrong, wrongly done. Why do you think they didn't speak to her or didn't verify your alibi? I think I was set up so they would be able to put me in prison and keep me safe so that they'll have a witness to testify about the murder case. One of the other witnesses had gotten killed on a motorcycle accident, so their witnesses was getting slim. So I think that I was placed in that situation for them to get me off of the streets so I would be in place when it was time for them to do the murder trial that I was involved in. What was life in prison like for somebody at the age of 18, incarcerated for something that they didn't do? Did you have a support system that helped you keep your sanity? Prison is very controlled. Everything that you do is monitored. You are told when to do everything from going to the bathroom when you eat, when you can shower, when you can talk on the phone. Prison is, especially in South Carolina, is worse in other states. Physical altercations is a lot worse in out in the West versus the South Carolina prison system. It's still rough, but and I did my time in on a level three yard, but it's more of a mind game. It's a mental warfare. You constantly battle with the individuals that are around you. You battle with them mentally. You battle, battle with yourself. And you battle with the authorities that are in control of you. So it's really a chess game for the most part. It's a mental warfare. And you lose your dignity. You lose your manhood. You're treated like less than an animal is very demeaning, degrading. You feel like a low life. You feel like you are desperate. You feel like you have no hope. Like, it's another world. It's not something I typically wish on my worst enemy. I did have somewhat of a support system as far as, I would say, mail and letters. I did have individuals that supported me with, like, Kites sending me letters and cards and stuff of that nature. Financially, a little bit, not so much. I learned to live off the land in in, in prison. That's what you got to do. I mean, it's ways to hustle in in um, in prison. You can shine sh you can shine shoes. You can um, you can sell stuff from the cafeteria. It's 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 always a hustle, no matter where you at. So I learned to live off the land, and um, I learned to come up. But I learned a, a lot in prison because my take on it was. I was innocent. So I wanted to make that time very, very useful. So I actually took, I got my GED. I dropped out of school. So I actually got my GED and I got three college 
uh, credits in like in math. I took a brick masonry course while I was locked up. I ended up becoming the head clerical assistant in the cafeteria where I had be- previously became the uh, baker and I became the head baker over the entire facility. So I was in charge of all the bakery products. So I learned how to bake and cook on a on a mass level in prison. I learned how to read recipes. I learned how to really apply myself. I learned how to play. I spent my time playing chess, uh, dominoes, but I did a lot of studying. I did. A, I dove into um, myself. I wanted to fix the problem of what landed me here. So I did a lot of self-reflecting. I did a lot of um, uh, philosophical research. Uh, I studied the universe. I studied almost every walk of life while I was um, incarcerated. I learned a lot. I actually would say that in the six years and two months that I was incarcerated, I learned more than I actually learned at living 18 years on, on this on the streets. So I gained, in a sense, to me more than what I actually lost because I was headed in a bad place and I could have ended up losing my life and uh, or I could have gotten a life sentence. So I become grateful and thankful when I started to look down the line of what could have happened. I was incarcerated for a crime that I did not commit, but I did do things. I broke the law. Um, I committed crimes. So I started when I learned about universal law and how to balance things out in life. I learned that I committed crimes that I got away with. So when I got penalized for a crime that I did not commit, I saw that as the as the universe balancing things out in life. I have some sobering and striking numbers. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, there are nearly two million people behind bars in the United States at any given time. That means the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the whole world. I feel like racial disparities among those incarcerated and the impact of the privatization of the prison system with its devastating socioeconomic effects on so many inmates and their families around the country could fill a whole podcast by itself, let alone this episode. But in broader terms, why do you think we are locking up so many more people than any other country around the world. Do Americans tend to commit more crimes or are other countries just so much more lenient? Well, I think America is the land of the free and you have a lot of free will and a lot of free choice. And the, But the punishments for people's actions in society is more of a lucrative investment for the government. And it's about money more than it is about actually fixing a a problem. Because if you keep the person in the system over and over, who's actually benefiting from it? The people that actually own the facilities and gain from the profits of, of that facility. So I think it's more of that America don't have the solutions that the other countries are and that the other countries aren't making money off of these massive uh, facilities that are scattered out, out throughout the United States. I know you mentioned that you learned quite a bit while you were incarcerated, but do you feel that the time behind bars properly equipped you with the skills and the mindset that you needed to be successful upon release from prison? Now, I know it's kind of a known secret that the U.S. prison system has the reputation 
that very little is done to actually rehabilitate offenders and provide them with the skills needed to be successful upon completion of their sentences. Punishment always seems to be the main objective, and while it is a valid and important one for the purpose of deterrence, ignoring the urgent need for true rehabilitation of offenders can be quite consequential, contributing significantly to the high recidivism rate we see in this country. Almost 44% of people released from prison return within a year from the time of release. Meanwhile, a statistical study shows more Americans believe the criminal justice system needs to prioritize punishing criminals rather than invest more money into rehabilitative programs. This is all based on information provided by wisevoter.com. What are your views on that? And again, can you share your own impressions from your time behind bars? While I was incarcerated, there were a minimum amount of things you could do. You could get a your GED. You could go to school. But this was back in like 1999. So this is from my own personal experience. You could get a GED. You couldn't get any major degrees. Prison industries was going on while when I first got incarcerated and guys was making a little bit of money, but nothing substantial to the profit that were being paid to the people that own the prison industry. So then those um, prison industries started getting taken away. So now you like you're in prison and you're incarcerated, but you aren't make you're not making money and you don't have like a rehabilitation program that is going to fix the problem at its root of why you are actually in there. There's nothing really in place in prison that can help that helps you do that. When I got released, I actually pursued in getting help with vote rehab in Spartanburg. And they told me I had to have some type of mental health issue in order to get any type of help with them. So it's more about if you don't apply yourself, you're going to be really thrown to the wolves and left to figure it out on your own or end up back in prison. With everything nowadays being public information for everyone to see, one thing I take issue with is the fact that we allow companies to base their hiring decisions in part on criminal background checks. They can easily conduct online for anyone seeking employment at their company. The same principle applies to landlords choosing tenants and of course, thanks to the internet, it's also possible for people to just snoop around and gain intel on that potential new boyfriend or girlfriend. It is my belief that anyone who has committed a crime should receive a clean slate after they have paid their dues to society for their mistakes, having either paid mandated fines or having served a prison sentence, for example. It strikes me as harsh and unforgiving that we continue to mark people as undesirable, unemployable, not worthy of living in a certain place, etc., even after they have done everything in their power to correct their wrongs. How do we expect for people to do better when we so greatly restrict their options right from the start of their regained freedom? 
you are now an employer yourself. So what is your take on that? Do you background check and would you hire somebody with a criminal background? Yes, I have hired people with criminal records and I will not discriminate against someone that has a criminal record because that would be me discriminating against my own self because I've been there before. I have been in a situation where I had an opportunity to be the kitchen manager of a large chain restaurant in Greenville. And I went through three interviews with all of the top people. They loved me to death. But since I had a record, I had to get the approval from the president for them to hire me. And once he saw my record, that's the only thing he saw. He didn't see the person I was. The only thing he saw was what was on black and white, what was written on that on my record. He allowed that to define who I was, and he never met me a day in his life. And everyone in his staff loved me and wanted me to become the, the KM, but they didn't have that authority to make that decision. It had to go through him. And that I lost that, that job. I did not get it. And that is what showed me that I had to take matters into my own hand and start investing my time into myself instead of making someone else rich. Luckily, you are no longer behind bars and you're sitting right across from me right now. You only had to do six years and two months out of those 12 very long years. How has your life changed since your release, personally and professionally? Was it easy to leave the drug trade and what appears to be easy money behind to now build your own companies from the ground up? My life began to change once I decided to take self-accountability for being there, regardless regardless of if I did anything wrong or not, I was the sole controller of my own destiny because I made the conscious decision to be in a certain place at a certain time. So I had to take that accountability. And I started implementing that in everything in my life. So when I, I learned to, to work for free in prison, and when I got out, Working became so easy because I literally had to work in prison to get time knocked off of my sentence. So this is how I developed my grind because I was working for my freedom. And so when I got out and I saw that people was willing to pay me for my work ethic in society, I started implementing that same mentality that I developed in prison and I had did it for free. So if you're going to pay me, yeah, I'm showing up. And so that's when I just started just learning as much as possible and just climbing up in no matter what I was doing, if it was the restaurant business, whatever, the flooring, whatever I did, I took accountability and I learned as much as possible and I mastered it. And then once I saw that there was an avenue for me to actually make money in society, this is when I started to branch out on my own and started doing my own thing. Tell us a little bit about the businesses that you have built since getting out of prison. And one thing that you mentioned to me that you felt very strongly about is that you want to give back and help others rebuild their own lives. 
So what are the things you do now to make an impactful difference in the lives of other people? Well, the mother company to all of my success is Universal Lawn and Floor. Uh, we do about anything when it comes to landscaping, but we're big in the commercial space uh, now. The last two years, we've like uh, expanded and blew up tremendously. So we do anything outside for the most part. And is I started it out on my own just cutting grass and people seeing my work and my workmanship in, in, in people's yard. And it just kind of took off from there and the actual workmanship, the dependability and the loyalty and the honesty and the credibility that I've established in Greenville and all throughout um, South Carolina now is what my company is based off of, is being able to get a service that's simple, easy, and fast and get in and out and get stuff done and not have to go through a whole bunch of hula hoops. It's um, what Universal Law on the Floor is about. And I'm using that as a platform to you build other companies after that model. I have a flooring company, a cleaning company, commercial and residential. Uh, we also um, are doing, now I'm doing financial literacy. We repair uh, credit, we do business funding, anything that has to do with financial literacy, that is what I'm gearing toward because I want to hire people and influence people that are just like that are just like me. I want to be that guy that can help shave those five years off of the, your your uh, process that it took me to get where I'm at. I don't want people to have to struggle as hard as I have had to struggle to get the knowledge and information for business or for personal development because personal development is huge in, in, in business because if your personal life is a disaster, it's going to flow into your business. And, and I've experienced that. So I've had to learn all of these things on my own because there are not more people out there like me willing to step up to the plate and tell the story like it truly went. Because I don't want people to have to go through what I've had to go through. And that's what I'm there for. I'm building my platform. I'm building my legacy so I can have the funds and have the a means to be able to give back more and hire more people like me to have a, a larger impact in society with um, the experience that I've obtained throughout the years. What do you think we as people can do to end the stigma and to help those released from prison in a meaningful way as they attempt to utilize the freedom and the second chance they have rightfully earned by doing their time and working on becoming a better person. What can we do to make sure they don't end up being a part of that 44% I mentioned in the recidivism statistic earlier? I think everyone should just treat people the way that they want to be treated and not judge people based off of their past or what's on a piece of paper. You judge people by their ways and their actions and what they're currently doing because people can change. And that's been a proven fact that people can change because I'm living proof because I made a choice to not go back down the same road. I think that the, we need to stop building so many facilities and take that money and to put programs and facilities in place for the people that are incarcerated. They either need to have somewhere to go or have a system 
that they can plug into to where they can successfully go back into society and not be just thrown back on the streets. Because if you throw a dog out on the streets, if he's hungry, he's going to eat whatever's available. Donnie, thank you so, so much. I think your story is incredibly powerful. It proves how even in the darkest of hours, one can muster the strength to grow. Now, if our listeners send us some questions for you, would you be willing to come back and have a follow-up conversation with me? Yes, of course. And that is it for episode six. Is your mind still spinning? <laughs> Mine sure is. That was one heck of a story. Donnie is living proof that people are able to learn, to change, and to then help others do the same. It's about lending someone a helping hand so they can improve their lives. You can't do the hard work for them, but you can make it a little easier by showing up for them and making them realize that they are not alone. What can you do in your little place in this big world to make a huge difference for someone today? Just think about it, and then just do it. Friends, thank you for spending some time with our podcast today. I really appreciate every single one of you tuning in, listening, evolving. If you would like to find out more about Donnie, feel free to contact me and ask your questions for a follow-up episode. I'm telling you, Donnie has a lot more interesting stories to tell us. You can get in touch with me in a number of ways. Call the Thoughtvolution virtual voicemail box at 864-501-5033 that is 864-501-5033, or send an email to info at thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. There is Facebook and Instagram where you can find us by typing in Thoughtvolution. Of course, please also check out my lovely website with an episode guide, a merch store with only the finest garments, hoodies, t-shirts, and hats designed by yours truly, and <laughs> so much more. That website is www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. That is also where you can find our intake form so that you can get on this show to tell your very own story. Again, the website is www.thoughtvolutionpodcast.com. Last but not least, if you enjoy this podcast, and we are just getting started, by the way, there are so many more amazing guests dying to tell you about their personal journeys. But if you love Thoughtvolution, please make sure to rate, review, and share. It helps us reach more people so they are able to meet Donnie, Don, Jennifer, Dustin, Anna, Nariman, and so many others. Every story is meaningful, important, valuable, and deserving of people like you who care enough to just listen. So thank you again. I can't wait for us to meet right here in exactly one week. And until then, remain wonderful and curious. And as always, be kind to each other. I love y'all. <laughs> <laughs>